And if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. This morning, we will conclude the 11th chapter of Hebrews. The Hall of Faith, it has been called by some, which has celebrated the persons and the events through which God delivered the story and the drama of redemption over the course of time and history. And as we finish these last few verses, you'll hear many more names in reference to much more history than we can recount in one sermon. As a matter of fact, if we wanted to, we could spend 12 more weeks just in these last few verses because of the volume of names and events that are referenced. It would be easy to do that, but we will not. Instead, in one sermon, we'll consider many things able to say only a little bit about some of them. In fact, the author himself, you're going to hear as we read the passage, will admit that, that it's too much to talk about. Time doesn't allow for it. But what he does do, and what I want to emphasize this morning, is he gives us two important categories of people. You could call it two lists of people. And from those two lists, we can learn a great deal about the Christian life, the reality of the Christian life, and the experience of believers who have gone before us and that live among us. Those two lists are these. You'll hear them in a moment. It is that some who live by faith live through dramatic stories, victorious stories of success. And then there are others who, by faith, live through stories, dramatic stories of suffering. Give your careful attention to the reading of God's holy word as we hear of these two kinds of stories of faith. Two kinds of stories, one kind of faith, the kind that perseveres. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 to 40. And what more shall I say? I do not, I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death 
by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Let's pray that God would help us understand this challenging word. Lord, we ask this morning as your church that you would show us what this faith, this saving faith does to a person. Lord, would you shape us with this faith? Would you grow us in this faith? And Lord, would you arm us with such faith that if called to suffer, we might persevere. We ask this, we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Tough sermon this morning, challenging word for us all. But the truth is this, the Christian life is really all about finishing well. Finishing well, persevering, enduring in faith. The message of perseverance. It's what the message of Hebrews is all about. One commentator I read this week, and I'll take his word for it, he said there are 349 biological, excuse me, biological, biographical, there's a difference, biographical sketches and studies of people in the Bible. 349 of those. And only 67 of those 349 are described as finishing well. Doesn't mean that the others don't, but only 67 of 349 are described as, and they finished strong, they finished well in the faith. In our passage of what we've read, not just this morning, but in all of Hebrews chapter 11, all are commended for persevering in faith. Some of those persevered through great opposition and obstacles, and they saw thrilling, victorious moments. And then there are others who persevered through great suffering, not receiving the fulfilled promise in this life. And so there's your tension, there's your two lists, your two categories in the, pas- in the passage that we have just read. So I have four really simple points this morning trying to extract from the passage the big ideas and then for us to apply. And the first is this. It's what Hebrews is all about as a book. It is about real saving faith and how it perseveres. That's the reason for the author's sermon 
letter. It's the message of the letter to the Hebrews by this author. You'll remember that just before chapter 11 in this hall of faith of all these people, all these events, all these characters of how God fulfilled his promise through a seed line, in chapter 10, verse 39, just before Hebrews 11, we are told not to shrink, not to shrink back in our faith. We are not those, he says, who shrink back and who are destroyed by lack of faith, but we are of those who persevere and are saved. And that's how he prepares us for Hebrews chapter 11. He gives us all these positive examples of what persevering, what it looks like, and how we have a long history of believers before us who persevered through amazing stories and how God used them. And then at the tail end of chapter 11, he gives us not stories of great victory, but he gives us those stories of great suffering. But for all of them, whether great victories or great suffering, he says, we don't shrink. God is at work. He works saving faith in his people. We would say in his elect people. They will endure by faith through whatever obstacles, through whatever suffering is before them in this life. He previously, in Hebrews, you remember, gave negative examples of people of Israel who did not persevere in faith. That's that wilderness generation in the book of Numbers. So he's highlighted that not all will persevere, but that there are a people who will persevere. And to encourage them pastorally, he says, and we're not going to be those who shrink. We will be of those who persevere by faith like all those listed in Hebrews chapter 11. So there is a real saving faith, and that real saving faith perseveres. The real saving faith, point two, perseveres through great obstacles, through great opposition. And this is list one. We'll call it list one this morning. It's verses 32 to 35a. It changes abruptly in what's listed as verse 35. But listen to it again. List one of those who experienced miraculous God intervening into the story and granting them great success, great victory to be celebrated. It says this, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell. Pause there for a moment. One commentator suggests he admits here my sermon, my letter would go on too long if I were to get into the details of all these people. So one commentator says, oh, well, this will define what a long sermon is. And that should be, you know, our ending point. You may remember when we began Hebrews, um, it takes about 45 minutes to an hour, depending on your pace, to read through Hebrews. So any sermon more than an hour is too long. And I tend to aim for about 30 minutes. So I've been selling you short. I owe you some length. Okay? Give you what he expects. No, that's not really his intent. But it is interesting to think about. He says, I know that people's attention span is only so much. I've written so much. I'm not going to go into detail. But he says, I am going to say some things. And so here he goes. I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith 
conquered kingdoms. You hear the victory? You hear the success? They conquered kingdoms. They administered justice. And they gained what was promised. Who shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the fury of the flames. They escaped the edge of the sword. Whose weakness was turned to strength. And who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again, abruptly stops list number one. All right, you hear that, I trust as I read that. These are the highlight moments. These are the peaks of redemptive history as God intervened and brought success. He brought strength in the midst of weakness. He brought victory where everything humanly reasoning would conclude there would be failure. And we celebrate these moments of the Lord's intervention in his delivery of his people. He references Gideon, that's Judges chapter 7, who with only 300 men defeated the mighty Midianite army that greatly outnumbered them. He mentions Barak, Judges chapter 4, who routed the mighty Canaanite army and the chariots that they had, which were led by Sisera. He mentions Salmon, Salmon. He mentions Samson. He doesn't say anything about Salmon. He mentions Samson, who in Judges chapters 13 and 16, you'll read he had an up and down life. Samson was not like this. Samson was all over the place. But he finished well by faith. And though blind, God made, having lost his weakness, God made him strong again. And he pulled down and destroyed that which had risen up in opposition to God. He mentions Jephthah, Judges chapter 11. David, and all that David was and all that David did. We think of David and Goliath, the mighty Philistine warrior, who with five smooth stones would drop the giant with a mere stone, with one. One of the stones. And we read that and it's, you never saw victory coming out of that story. And the Lord delivered David and all of Israel. He references Samuel, the books of Samuel, all the prophets. You see how I say we could get 12 more weeks just out of these verses, just to go revisit every one of these accounts he's just mentioning by personal name. Then, in verse 33, he stops the personal name use, but he references events that we're familiar with, other passages in Scripture that are well known to us. So in verse 33, he references shutting the mouths of lions, which is surely a reference to Daniel in Daniel chapter 6. Verse 34, quenched the fury of flames. Likely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel chapter 3. Then in verse 34, those who escape the edge of the sword, those who looked like they would perish, and the Lord delivered them and rose up and gave them success. Perhaps Jehoshaphat, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 12 through 15. And then this mysterious comment about women receiving back their dead raised to life again. We have two accounts of that. 
Elijah and Elisha. 1 Kings 17, 2 Kings chapter 4. Isn't it interesting to hear his knowledge rattling off of his mind? You hear his mind work. And, and it's not always chronological, right? He might go Judges chapter 7 and then go to Judges chapter 4. But these stories are familiar to him. It's a part of his spiritual history and his physical history. And it should be ours too. We should know these stories because they're intended to encourage us of how God has been at work delivering the truth of his promises to come to bear on the life of his people. These are, tend to be the content of children's Sunday school materials, even children's movies, uh, Veggie Tales, in one way, for better or for worse, recaptures a lot of these stories. Uh, we, my son reminded me that that story of Jericho, as told by the Veggie Tales, involved the, the throwing of blue slushies or red slushies. I can't remember. Okay, slushies were not in the Bible. We want our kids to know the stories, but we really should know these stories in the way that they're given to us because they're intended to encourage us of how God is at work. And we love these Victoria stories. These are easy to retell. And so list one, as we'll call it, in the end of Hebrews 11. Man, those make for great movies. They're great stories to tell. And they're all true. Every one of them. They're all true. But the author doesn't stop there. And so the sermon can't stop there. He continues that historical list and commentary to give us a realistic picture of what has gone before us in the Christian life, the life by faith in the living God. So far, the list, it's, it's hard to live through any of those characters. It's not easy living by faith through any of those stories. It was great to get to the conclusion, but it was hard to get to that point of victory as the mighty acts of God delivered them. And if we stopped the sermon here and didn't continue to the end of chapter 11, we could wrongly conclude from this list and these events that things just go according to plan, like a storybook story that we would write the way that we would write it. And we might conclude that our stories can be driven by our personal agendas and that everything's going to end exactly the way we want it to in this life. But the list goes on and, and, and doesn't reveal it to be that true. He says, there is more to saving faith and to perseverance that we should know. And there are others, others who are unnamed that we need to know about. And so we'll call it list two. Real saving faith perseveres through great suffering. Listen again to Hebrews 11, 35b, the second half of verse 35 to verse 38. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some face jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning, 
They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. Notice there's not a single personal name given to those horrific events. If list one is defined by the mighty acts of God, list two is not outside of the acts of God, but we could call it the miserable acts of men who have persecuted God's people. And there are others, unnamed people, who did not experience the victory or, th or the success in this life that the list one people experienced. And they go unnamed, interestingly. I had a um, coach in high school who, um, if you were one of the, the non-starters, say if you were over on this side of the field and you were holding the dummies for other people to, to hit, um, he would call those people by category ATOs. He'd refer to them as, okay, you ATOs, go do such and such. ATO, well, Coach, what's an ATO? He said, it stands for all the others. I don't know their names. You just go do what I tell you to do. It's kind of pretty insulting, right? Is the author here not naming these people as an insult? Or is it showing dignity in some way? It's clearly not an insult. Perhaps this is in some way showing dignity. I don't know. But he doesn't name them, though we do know through accounts who some of these people likely were. He says they were tortured, they were imprisoned, they were jeered, they were flogged, they were chained, they were stoned, they were sawn in two. There's history that references the prophet Isaiah as having been sawn in two. And it seems to be pretty undisputed history. Multiple historians, not even believing historians, have recognized that that was the conclusion to the prophet Isaiah's life. That he was sawn in two. Killed by the sword, lived in poverty, were homeless, destitute, persecuted, and treated wrongly. Okay, so how's your Christian life going? How many of you are quick to say, I'm pretty persecuted. It's pretty tough to be a Christian at the workplace or at the gym or on the team. We may know in our life what it is to be belittled or insulted or made to feel this big. But who of us has any personal experience with anything close to this? So we speak of suffering in our day, and there is suffering. There is suffering like this kind happening to believers in the world. But we as comfortable Americans really do not have a category for this list two kind of suffering. But it is real. There is a persecution. There is martyrdom within the church. 
And the passage says this remarkable thing. After this horrific description of things that have really happened to people because of their faith in the Lord, he has this remarkable statement that though they were despised, they were rejected, they were destitute, they wandered about without a place to live, they wore animal skins, he says, and this world was not worthy of them. You see, he's not insulting them. He's saying they are a special gift, a treasure of the Lord given to the world, and the world despised them and rejected them, just as we know the world did the Lord Jesus, and as the prophet Isaiah anticipated that the people would. Two quick stories, and I don't want to belabor this, but in the intertestamental period, that time, there are 400 years between the completion of the Old Testament and the writing of the New Testament. The intertestamental period, 400 years of time. We have some history recorded. It's actually in the book of 2 Maccabees, though it's not a part of what we believe to be divine scripture, holy scripture. It does include historical accounts that we believe are historical. And in 2 Maccabees chapter 7, you can go and read it if you'd like to, there's a story told that is probably, commentators say, it is probably what the author of Hebrews is referencing here. It's a story of a mother and her seven sons. They were living at a time under a tyrannical pagan king who was ruthless. And he found it sport to gather the Israelites, particularly a a prominent family at a time, and to demand upon the penalty of suffering and death that they eat pork, that they violate the law, that they profane Yahweh, the God that they worshiped. And there's a story told in 2 Maccabees 7 of a mother and her seven sons And this cruel pagan king in front of the mother brought the seven sons and one by one demanded that they eat pork and defy Yahweh. But the mother sat there and the story is told that by faith she said to her sons, don't you do it. Don't you do it. And it's true, it's graphic, but it's true. They cut out tongues. They cut off limbs. They had a cauldron of fire. They burned bodies. And they did it one by one by one, tempting the next son every time to violate, to defy, to break, to profane God's name. And the mother sat there and cheered their faith on person by person by person. Conclusion of the story, seven sons put to death and a mother put to death as well. By faith, suffering, something we can't imagine seeing, not even in the worst of movies. That's likely one of the stories that he's referencing here, talking about believers and how there was a season of persecution. There are a lot of stories like that in church history, 
even in our not too distant history, but time, time does not allow that I tell you stories of the Covenanters and the killing times, how mothers and daughters were drowned, very similar scenario, trying to get each other to recant their faith. But there is a mo more modern story that I will relate. Some of you know the name of Jim Elliott. On January the 8th, 1956, not so long ago, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Udarian in an execution of what was called Operation Aka, an effort to take the gospel to the Aka Indians in Ecuador. They were speared to death on a sandbar called Palm Beach in the Curare River of Ecuador. They were trying to reach the Aka Indians for the first time in history with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's a long story, and so I won't tell just the, the footnote version. Not footnote, that's the word I'm looking for. The summary version of it is this. There was an unreached people group, and they said, let's take the good news of Jesus Christ to them. Though they were known to be hostile, there was a little skirmish between Shell Oil Company and these Indians. And they were killing some of the Shell employees that were trying to come and scout out the area. But these missionaries said, let's go. And so they took a plane and one of them was a pilot. And what I read said they would, they would fly around the island in tighter and tighter, tighter circles and bring gifts down in a bucket to the people. And they did this for days, and they knew a little bit of the language uh, from, from one person that they had been able to communicate with. And they tried to communicate with the people. And then finally, the people reciprocated and, and sent a gift back up to them in the bucket. And that began this slow process of trying to know these people. And you can go read this story. There's some great sources online that will summarize it much better than I can do right now. But in this sincere and good effort to bring the gospel to bear, they never even had the chance to talk about Jesus. Because on day two, when they finally landed and thought they'd won the trust of a few of them, they were put to death by the spear. The story of Jim Elliott and his four sons. The story goes on that years later, some of those family members of those missionaries would go and live with those Indians, the Aucas, and would share Christ with them, what the missionaries themselves weren't able to do. Now the spouses and children would live among those people. And those people, not all of them, but many of them, would be converted to faith in Christ. And the gospel is there and exists because of that suffering that by faith those Christians were willing to do. So what Jim Elliott and his four friends did, amazing suffering for the gospel. But what their spouses and children did to go and live among those people who had killed them, by faith, they did amazing things. Their hearts were not hardened by that suffering. Their hearts were somehow strangely softened by it. And so as we prepare to conclude the sermon, let me remind you there are two lists of what we've just read about. 
Maybe your story of life has had some amazing victories in it. Storybook story in many ways. And if only all of our stories were that way in this life. But some of your stories are different, and some of them may become very different. Should God call you to suffer in some way for the sake of the gospel? What if you and I are numbered among the others, the unnamed others that the author gives us? Joseph Schumann says, all Christians suffer. Either you have, or you are, or you will. And I think he's right. In some way, we are going to be called to suffer. It is a part of what it is to be a Christian and to follow Jesus. In just a moment, we're going to read, no, we're going to sing. We're going to sing a hymn, Jesus, I My Cross Have Taken. And just like I tried to highlight the lyrics um, for our pastoral prayer of the song we sang before it, let me ask you to to look at the hymn that's printed in your insert of your bulletin. And, And let me caution you, let me warn you that this particular hymn written by Henry Light is actually a prayer. And we want to know what we're praying and we want to be careful what we're praying for. So listen to these first few stanzas in light of Hebrews chapter 11, and particularly the others who are listed there, and I think you'll hear a lot of echo. Jesus, I my cross have taken, all to leave and follow thee. Destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known. Yet how rich is my condition. God and heaven are still my own. Let the world despise and leave me. They've left my Savior too. Human hearts and looks deceive me. But thou art not like them, untrue. Oh, while thou dost smile upon me, God of wisdom, love, and might, foes may hate and friends Disown me, but show thy face, and all is bright. Man may trouble and distress me, twill but drive me to thy breast. Life with trials hard may press me, but heaven will bring me sweeter rest. Oh, tis not in grief to harm me, while thy love is left to me. Oh, twere not in joy to charm me were that joy unmixed with thee. And here's the hard prayer right here. Go then, earthly fame and treasure. Come, disaster, scorn, and pain. For in thy service, pain is pleasure. And with thy favor, loss is gain. I have called thee Abba, Father. I have stayed my heart on thee. Storms may howl. And clouds may gather, but all must work for good to me. Final word. The author of Hebrews finishes chapter 11 and reminds us that all that he has spoken of, they're commended for their faith. But none of them received the fulfillment of the promise in this life. That's verses 39 to 40. He says this, 
These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Quite simply, they had a view in the resurrection. They had a view that God would deliver them, that God would make all things right. And so we too should have such a view, not knowing which list our life could be listed on. But if we have a view of the resurrection, we're told we can look at any suffering in this life and that there is a saving faith that is real that can enable us to persevere when we trust in Him. Finally, 1 Peter chapter 4, listen to how Peter prepares us to suffer. Therefore, since Christ suffered in His body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. We are all called to suffer. Either we are, or we will, or we have. Let's pray that God would work such a saving faith in us that we would be able to stand firmly in Him. Lord, that is our prayer for one another that our faith would be deep and abiding, able to withstand the suffering of a sinful world. Lord, we are humbled by what we've heard, humbled by the mighty victories, the success that you've given your people to accomplish your purposes. And Lord, humbled by the reality of suffering, those unnamed others. But Lord, would you give us hearts of faith that are willing to be identified with Jesus. Whatever may come in the future of our world, our culture, our nation, Lord, with your church, we pray that you would abide. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.